Uh, in this study, we have been each week taking a piece of the furniture in the tabernacle, and we have been learning the, the intricate details, and it's been amazing to look at God's Word, to go back to the Old Testament and to see just, just how specific God was with each and every one of the furnishings. Each and every one of the furnishings, God had a certain set of expectations, a certain set of instructions uh, to give the children of Israel, and the children of Israel followed them to a T. Every single time we've seen these instructions, the children of Israel make it happen. And so we have this glorious tabernacle, this tabernacle full of furnishings, and it's been amazing to go back, as I said, to see, to see those details come to life in the text, in the story of the Exodus and the children of Israel. But how much more amazing has it been to go back to the New Testament and to look at our lives and to look at our faith and to think about how much more we have been offered through Christ. Both of these have been amazing to us ministers. I know we have talked about it a lot as we go throughout our week studying for these lessons. Uh, it's been amazing for us. I hope so for you. And as we think about our study of the, the furnishings of the tabernacle, we have really been on a, a journey together as we've gone through the tabernacle with one another. And we started over here as we entered into the tabernacle. We started over here. We, we entered into a pool of blood in front of us as we talked about the altar of burnt offering. And we entered into the howling noises of animals and birds and, 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 and bulls and goats crying for their lives over the sin of the children of Israel as the blood spilled from the altar of burnt offering. And we continued through the tabernacle and we saw the, the bronze laver, the, the, this, 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 basin, this basin of water that was obviously beside the altar so that they could cleanse themselves from, from the, 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 the sin and the gross entrails and blood or whatever it might be from the altar of burnt offering. And then we continued into the, the, the holy place, into the holy place, and, and we saw the golden lampstand, and, and we saw the table of showbread, and we saw the altar of burnt incense, and each one having their individual instructions and individual specific meanings behind them, and, and each one having a parallel in the New Testament for us to learn from. And then we continued on through the tabernacle and through the most holy place and, and there was this huge, massive veil. This veil that separated us from the holy place and the most holy place. And we talked about how Christ, through His sacrifice, tore that veil from top to bottom. How he tore that veil so that everyone could enter into the most holy place. And tonight, we conclude our study of the tabernacle with the final piece of furniture. We conclude our, our study, Rooms to Know, with the final piece of furniture. The only piece of furniture that was found in the most holy place is where we are going to conclude our study. This piece of furniture was the piece that was only able to be visited one time a year. One time of year by one person. 
And that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The piece of furniture we are talking about tonight is the reason why the others are even there in the first place. The piece of furniture we're talking about tonight is what all the other ones lead you towards. Tonight we're going to be studying about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat of God. As you think about that and you hear the Ark of the Covenant, it's probable in a, a crowd like this on a Sunday night, that many of you, if not all of you, have heard about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, you can think in your mind about different things that you remember about the Ark of the Covenant, and maybe you remember the facts. Maybe you remember the facts about the Ark of the Covenant. And so when you think about the Ark of the Covenant, you know that only the Levites were able to transport the Ark of the Covenant, right? They were, on, they were the only ones that were able to, to transport the Ark of the Covenant, and if anyone else touched it, they would die. Or maybe you remember the fact that there were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you remember that there were two tablets of stone from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments written on them. Or maybe you remember uh, that there is a bowl, a golden bowl of, of manna also in that Ark of the Covenant. Or maybe you remember even that there was a rod that budded almond blossoms. That was also in the Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that in verse 4 that sure enough all three of these items were there in the Ark of the Covenant. And so maybe you remember the facts about the Ark of the Covenant or, or perhaps you remember the, the, the stories and the biblical accounts we have in the Old Testament about the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you remember how the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle one time with them in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and the Philistines took it captive took the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Testimony and they took it with them and you remember that story of all the chaos that ensued in the Philistine camp because of that what happened in that Philistine camp they couldn't wait to get rid of it why because it was causing havoc it was wreaking havoc on all their people and in fact at the end of chapter 6 of 1 Samuel guess what happened God strikes down 50,000 Philistines because they had the audacity to steal the Ark of the Covenant. What a, what, 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 what a crazy story. God striking down 50,000, over 50,000 people for the audacity to steal this Ark of the Covenant. Or maybe you remember the story more famously of David. Remember David, we talked about the Levites were the ones that were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you remember how David transported it incorrectly. You remember in 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see that, that David puts on a cart instead of having the Levites carry it. And what happens? Well, sure enough, as they are going through the city and celebrating a victory, celebrating the win and and everyone is celebrating, all of a sudden the cart hits a bump and the Ark of the Covenant starts to fall out. And who is there? Uzzah. And Uzzah puts his hands up to, to save the Ark from falling, from falling down. There he is. Just as God has said, anyone who is not a Levite touches this, he will surely die. And so Uzzah died. 
And so maybe you remember stories like that, or maybe you remember facts like that, but I hope when you think about the Ark of the Covenant, you don't really think of it as something that Harrison Ford found in a movie, right? In Indiana Jones movie. Great movie. Not really what the Ark of the Covenant is about. Sometimes we get so caught up in the facts about the Ark of the Covenant, or, or maybe you know the Ark of the Covenant has a, with it some, some mystic quality, right? And in fact, I remember, I don't know how many conversations I've had with people. If you, if you came upon the Ark of the Covenant today, would you touch it? Right? And, 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 you, and you have that debate with your friend or, or with someone you know that, that, that you know. And I've had that debate many times. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I don't think it has the same uh, meaning it, ha- it had to them, and I, I, I don't believe it even exists. Believe it. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But we think about the facts about some of these things without thinking about the meaning behind some of these things. Tonight, I, I, I don't get so caught up in, in, the, in the facts that we forget and neglect the reason why this is something we should know. I don't want to get so caught up on the facts about the ark so much as I want to focus on what this ark represented. Because when we think about the facts, we sometimes miss the point. And if you can look at the ark of the covenant and get a point from it, it is not really the ark. It's the mercy seat. The point of our lesson tonight is for us to look at the mercy seat of God. And these are two distinct things. There is an Ark of the Covenant and there is a mercy seat. But really, when you look at pictures of it, if you were to Google it right now, it's most likely you would see the image of both of these things. Because what was the mercy seat? Well, the mercy seat was the lid that went on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the covering. It, it, it was what enclosed the, the, the commandments and the manna and, and the, the rod of Aaron. It was what was on top. Okay? And so it's two separate distinct things, but really when it comes down to it, the mercy seat is what the point of the ark is. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so when we look at the Septuagint, we can understand similar words that we find in the New Testament to the Old Testament when we look at the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, we can see the word for mercy seat is helasterion. And this helasterion is, the definition of it is that which makes propitiation. Well, I love a definition that makes me ask what a definition is. What is propitiation? Well, propitiation is something that atones for. I love a definition that has a definition of something I need a definition for, right? What is atonement? Well, atonement is something that makes reparations for some wrongdoing. You you make reparations because of what you have done. Well, what does reparations mean? Good grief. Well, it means forgiveness. This is the forgiveness. This is the mercy seat of God. That's what the message is behind this piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Well, that's a pretty powerful piece of furniture. Are you telling me this piece of furniture has the ability 
in itself to forgive sin? No. No, this piece of furniture in and of itself did not have the ability to forgive sin. But the one who sat on it had the ability to forgive sin. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 where we're going to see uh, the beginning of this uh, creation, God's, God's commands, His expectations about the mercy seat itself. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 17 it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and make the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece, with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give to you. Let's stop right there. And so yet again, just like the rest of Exodus chapter 25, and just like every other piece of furniture, we see these minute, specific instructions and details about this mercy seat, this lid that covered the ark of the covenant. What, and we have an amazing description here, right? We think about the cherubs, and we think about these two cherubs with outstretched wings and how they face one another and how they're almost bowing to one another with their face toward the mercy seat. Well, there's a reason for all of that, and we're going to get to that in a second. But these are just the facts about the mercy seat. These are just the instructions about the mercy seat, but verse 22 gives us the meaning of the mercy seat. When he says, and there, when he says there, he says the mercy seat. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I give to you in the commandment to the children of Israel. There I will meet with you. There I will speak to you. The reason the mercy seat matters, the reason that it is something we should know, the reason that there is an altar of burnt offering and there is a bronze laver and there is a golden lampstand and a table of showbread and an altar of burnt incense, the reason all of it, the reason there's a veil separating us from the Ark of the Covenant the reason all we are here tonight to study the mercy seat is because that is where Jehovah God dwells. The mercy seat is where God Himself resided in physical form. That is where God Himself dwelt. The mercy seat was the physical dwelling place of God on earth. Not figuratively, God literally dwelled at the mercy seat. And Yahweh resided there. And therefore, it's no wonder the cherubs could not even look up. These cherubs were frozen in history. 
bowing down because they could not even look up at the presence of God. This is where God dwelt. I don't want us to overlook where it says God dwelt. Does it say God dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant among the two tablets of stone and the manna and the rod? No. It says God dwelt above the mercy seat. What does this tell me? It tells me that God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign and He is God over any physical earthly thing. God is sovereign and He is God above all and above everything. Even those Ten Commandments that He Himself had Moses write on those stones. In Exodus chapter 30 and verse 6, you can flip over there and see that sure enough, this is where God dwelt Himself. It says, And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony. There it is again. God over the law. He says, Where I will be with you. Yet again, this is where God was. In Numbers chapter 7 and verse 89. Weird thing to think about verse 89, but Numbers chapter 7 goes there. Verse 89 of Numbers chapter 7. It says, Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of the one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. And so here we see yet again another more examples of God choosing to reside and choosing to dwell above the mercy seat. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, we see a lot of instructions about the mercy seat. We see a lot of instructions about the Day of Atonement. Kyle talked about this a little bit last week with Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday for the Day of Atonement. We've really lined this up really well. We didn't do it on purpose, but... The Day of Atonement was Wednesday, I believe, right? It was Wednesday for the Jewish faith. Here we are on Sunday talking about the Day of Atonement, talking about the mercy seat. I find that interesting. But here in Leviticus chapter 16, there are a lot of different expectations, a lot of, of different specific commands that God gives. But let's read verse 2 together. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time to the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Man, I love God. God is just saying, tell, tell Aaron he better not show up just any old time. He better show up on my terms in the way I command, in the way I say, because guess what? This is my house. This is where I dwell. This isn't Aaron's. This isn't yours, Moses. This is where I reside. This is where I dwell. And so don't you just come up any old way. Don't you show up to my house any old way, looking any old way you want to or doing whatever you want to. You come on my terms. 
This is how it was at the Hogan house every time. You better tell us you're coming. You better tell you better tell me your friends are coming before they show up and the house is dirty. You better tell me your your your, your mom's coming, uh, my dad, before she shows up and sees my house in a wreck, right? No one else has any any connection to that story at all. No one? There it is. Okay. Love in laws, right? But this is what God says. He, he says this about his house. This is where I dwell. You don't just come any old way. You come on my terms. You come the way I expect you to come. Because this is where he dwells. This was his place. Look at verse 12. We're not going to read it, but we're going to see that he has ex- instructions to Aaron of what Aaron should do. He says in verse 12 that he should take coals from the altar of burnt offering and bring it to the, the most holy place in front of the mercy seat, in front of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Not only that, in verse 13, he says that you should take the censer full of, of incense, right? And you should bring that also with you as you come into the most holy place before the mercy seat. And so verses 12 and verses 13, here are more instructions as you approach the mercy seat. But really in verse 14 and 15, we're going to see some vivid details that God expects. He says, you shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the, with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Why does he do all that? Well, verse 16 says, So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgression for all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Man, a lot of instruction. A lot of expectations from God. Aaron or whoever the high priest was had to sprinkle on top of the mercy seat blood. Blood on the mercy seat. Blood before the mercy seat. You know, I really, really looked. And I couldn't find one passage that talks about cleaning up the mercy seat. Cleaning up the blood. Cleaning up all of the blood that would pile and cake onto the mercy seat for years and years and years. I couldn't find it. What's the indication there? That it was always there. I don't know. I don't know if the high priest would come in there and clean it up, but I'll tell you one thing. The high priest stayed in there as little as he possibly could. He got out. Because that wasn't his house. That's where God That's where the presence of God himself was. So for the nation and the people of God to get atonement, for them to be able to get forgiveness, the high priest had to go throughout this entire process. And he had to appear before the mercy seat of God. Tonight, as we try to grasp all of that, and we try to frame that into something that matters to me. Something that matters to you. 
we can go back to the book of Hebrews, right? So many times during this study of Rooms to Know, all of us have referenced the book of Hebrews. Why? Because here is this writer over 1,600 years after the life of Moses. 1,600 years, he takes us right back. Right back to the time of Moses. And he reminds all of his audience, he reminds all of his readers of the things that they used to know, the things that they know, and the things that they're relating to as a Jewish audience. And in chapter 9, we have read many verses from it. We see that the Hebrews writer, he reminds them of the Old Testament tabernacle. And he shows them unequivocally how Christ has provided something more. How Christ has thoroughly and unequivocally exceeded what the Old Testament tabernacle was. And in chapter 9 we see that Christ has been made has, has made a more perfect tabernacle, he says. We see that he has entered the most holy place once for all and having obtained eternal redemption and atonement. And then the writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 10 when he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus was what made that happen. The sacrifice of Jesus, the, the blood that was spilled, is more precious than all the bulls and goats combined throughout the Old Testament age. But to conclude those thoughts, to conclude chapter 9 and chapter 10 when we're talking about the sanctuary and the covenant and the sacrifice, how Jesus is better, the way he ends it, the way he concludes it, the way he, he brings it all together is a call to action. The way the, he, the writer of Hebrews brings it all together is he compels us to act upon this knowledge. We have to have a bit of action about us after we know these things. In verses 19 through 24, if you'll read with me in Hebrews chapter 2. This is how he ties it together. He says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You see the writer of Hebrews said the of Christ's sacrifice and His blood should cause you to do something. And so we get these let us passages. These let us commands. Because of Jesus, every single one of us can enter into the holiest of holies. Through His flesh, through His blood, through the veil, it says. He has consecrated each and every one of us. He says, let us, let us draw near with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. 
What's this sprinkle idea? Remember that? We just talked about Aaron and how Aaron had to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat of God. Here the Hebrews writer is saying, sprinkle your hearts. Sprinkle your hearts with blood and a pure conscience, having your bodies washed with pure water as you enter into the holies of holies. Let us draw near. He says, let us hold fast. He says, let us consider one another. You know, it's an amazing thought. It's an amazing blessing for us tonight to, to, to talk about how amazing it is that God allows us to enter the Holy Spirit. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? That somebody like me can enter into the holiest of holies through the blood of Jesus. That somebody who has failed so incredibly miserably like I have can enter into the holiest of holies through the blood of Jesus. That's an amazing thought. I hope you feel the same. But you know what's even more amazing than that? You know what's even more amazing to me than the fact that I can enter into the Holy of Holies? You know what's even a greater thought in my mind and in my heart than that, and than even that? Is the fact that not only can I go into the Holy of Holies, fact that God dwells in me. This is the fact that God God dwells in you. God, God has chosen to reside in me and in you. How amazing is that? The New Testament time and time again, uh, time and time again uh, affirms this thought. In the Old Covenant, God's presence was, was limited to the space in between the cherubs, right? We talked about it. But in the covenant of Christ, He lives and He dwells in you and me. We look at the New Testament, we see in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16 that the Father dwells in First John chapter 4 and verse 16 it says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. God the Father dwells in us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22. Paul would say, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God dwells in us. Guess who else dwells in us? God the Father dwells in us. God the Son dwells in us. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Through faith. 
In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God the Father dwells in us. God the Father resides in us. So does God the Son. Guess who else dwells in us? God the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, somebody says, Spirit doesn't dwell in us. Well, listen to the rest of this verse. See if you still want to say that. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. The rest of the verse says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Anybody signing up for that? I didn't think so. The New Testament continues in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14. Paul says, That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And he would also say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And maybe most powerfully, Jesus himself would say in John chapter 14 and verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home. God the Father has chosen to dwell in me. God the Son has chosen to dwell in me. God the Spirit has chosen to dwell within me. Somebody who from time to time don't know up from down and left from right. Somebody who from time to time cannot look more different than the image of of the ones who dwell within me. But as Christians, followers of Christ become the spiritual dwelling place of God. God dwells in each and every one of you. If you have obeyed the gospel and if you are walking in the light as He is in the light, God has made His home with you. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? John Iverson. Missed him tonight. I need that amen. God has made his dwelling place inside of each and every one of us. And what does that mean for us tonight? What does that mean for us tonight? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to see what it means. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. 
Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, said the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Wow. What a passage. Paul says, because God has made his home in me. Because he has, has dwe he dwells in me, he says, I can no longer be unequally yoked. I can no longer fellowship with darkness. I can no longer surround myself with idols or commune with the darkness around me. Because I have been made into the temple of the living God. There are expectations. Because I have been made into the temple of God, because of that, I must come out from among them and have no fellowship with darkness anymore. Because I have become the mercy seat of God. You have become the mercy seat of God. And at its greatest point, the mercy seat of the Old Testament was not enough. It was the holiest physical earthly embodiment of righteousness and embodiment of holiness that has ever been created, and it wasn't enough. How sad is it that that physical thing that was probably burned in captivity repurposed for other gold somewhere else. How sad is it that that, that thing is probably more holy and righteous than some of us tonight. Who is supposed to be the very image not the shadow of as the Hebrews writer talks about. Because I have to come out from among them and be separate, I have to stop touching what is unclean, the verse says. And if I want to have the Father to continue dwelling in me, I have to be His Son. If you're a woman, you have to be His daughter. And you have to cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh. And ultimately, verse 1 of chapter 7, we have to be continually perfecting holiness. Continually in the process of of perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see tonight. Tonight we have people in our lives. Maybe we have people here in this room with us tonight who once were the dwelling place of God. But they have fallen away. You know the thing is about the Israelites when they were faithful, God dwelled in them. But what happened the moment they were unfaithful? God left. And that box became just a chunk of metal that the Babylonians or the Assyrians or whoever it might be burnt down and melted into another thing. 
message is God will dwell in us as long as we dwell in Him. If that's you tonight, if you have once been the dwelling place of God, but you are no longer that dwelling place, it's because you left, not because God left. And if that is you tonight, it's time for you to cleanse yourself of all the filthiness of the flesh. It's time for you to look a, a serious, genuine look at your heart and sprinkle it. Sprinkle it. So that He may atone for those. And for some of us tonight, we have people in our lives, maybe we have people in this room tonight who have never been the dwelling place of God. It's time for you to so that you may serve the living God because without Him there is no mercy whatever your need is tonight there is a seat for you waiting and I can promise you one thing about that seat you're going to find mercy in it as together we stand and sing for your encouragement